On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Audio Judo. I'm Matthew. And I'm Kyle. Thank you for joining us on your podcast of music discovery. We're proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network. There are tons of podcasts over there about anything music-related you could possibly want to listen to. In fact, we produce two other podcasts besides Audio Judo. One of them is Throughline, uh, which Christian will take you on a journey through the throughline of each epi- uh, of each album uh, that he chooses uh, and to see what it's about. And the other one is uh, Audio Judo Does Jazz. Never going to believe what that's about. Jazz music. <laughs> yeah, what a surprise. Uh, but if you're interested in either of those, go check them out, pantheon.com, uh, or you can search for Pantheon Podcasts on any podcast service. Mm, chef's kiss. Mm-hmm. That was nice. So this podcast today marks the start of the fifth season wow. of Audio Judo. Uh, that First of all, that's freaking amazing. Yeah. Congratulations. We made it. Five, five-year anniversary. Same to you. This is technically episode number 114, Ooh. and I feel, uh, I'm feeling rejuvenated. I'm feeling drunk. Right? Yep. Yes. So we've talked about some amazing albums, and I'm so happy that this has uh, brought us a touch of success. But more than anything, it has just brought me a great deal of artistic satisfaction. Hmm. And I couldn't be more proud to actually have a, a vehicle to get all of the crap that I know about music out of my head. <laughs> That's the only reason you're doing this, isn't it? So that you don't go crazy. Yeah, got to get it out. You don't become a rambling old man sitting around like, did you know that uh, the 1968 late. album was it? I, 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 I. That's what I do. Oh, fair enough. All right. So That's... four years ago, our first first episode ever was an episode on the album Fear by Toad the Wet Sprocket. Yes. Uh, and that first season was uh, so successful, we felt that we decided that we had to start every season like that. Uh, season two began with an interview with lead singer Glenn Phillips. Mm-hmm. Season three, we covered their 1997 album Coil. Season four, we covered their comeback album 2013's New Constellation. And this year, we're going to their most commercially successful album. Uh, you would think it was Fear, and based on albums sold, that would be correct. But this record actually had two higher charting singles. Yeah. So for our first episode of season five, we were talking about 1994's Dulcinea. And I love this record. Uh, it was always a bit of a crapshoot how good this record would be because it was made in the wake of a huge tour yeah. and an exhausted band. But they rallied and made what is most definitely a more mature record and some consider a more spiritual one as well. Um, but for our newest listeners, it, it really is no secret that I am a huge Toad the Wet Sprocket fan. I have seen them multiple times, met them a few times, and their music just speaks to me the way Rush music does as well. In fact, just recently, I recorded a mini episode we like to call Judo Chops on a Rush song called Beneath, Between, and Behind. But the only way you can hear that is if you subscribe to our Patreon account. Hmm. So our Patreon site is the only place you're going to find all the extras that we work so hard to provide, but mostly Randy. There are (laughs) Judo Chops, which are mini episodes, like five to ten minutes about artists or albums or songs that just don't warrant a full episode of Audio Judo. There are bits that are taken out of episodes for whatever reasons, some bloopers, some full interviews, eventually, and some video content for you to enjoy. That's the plan. We have three tiers. There's the Shout It Out Loud tier, which would only cost you $1 in the U.S. or whatever the equivalent of $1 is in your local currency. For instance, in India, 82 rupees is currently $1. In Iceland, it's 131 krona. And in South Africa, it is 17 rand at the moment. 
For that amount, you get a shout-out on each episode. For $5 a month, the front row tier, you get a shout-out on each episode, early access to full episodes, access to all the bonus content. But with a more significant investment of $20 a month, which is a step up, you get the backstage pass tier. You get everything that is available at all the other tiers, a special personalized gift from Kyle and I, but more importantly, after paying for one year, you get to host an episode of Audio Judo with me and Kyle on the album of your choosing. Choose the Beatles. Choose the Spice Girls. We don't care. Please, God, Kristen, don't pick the album you're thinking of. Yes. Yes, I've heard. (laughs) Don't do it. Please, God, don't do it. Oh, that's going to be a tough one. Uh, We've completed a few of these. They're a ton of fun, and we are changing the way we do this tier as well. Oh, yeah. We used to tell everyone that you could only activate this once after one full year, and it is still a full year of patronage to use it. But if you want to stay on as a $20 a month patron after you record an episode, after two additional years, you can use it again. Mm -hmm. We have a patron who has recorded an episode with us already two years ago, who is now eligible to use that again. So you can find that link to our Patreon account on uh, our website, audiojudo.com, or you can find it on any of our socials as well. One other thing I did want to mention is if you don't want to be on the episode, you're welcome to just tell us what album you'd like us to do in exchange for that as well. So if you're like, you know what, I really don't want to come on the episode and talk, or, you know, I just want to write you a little blurb to say thank you. And, you know, here's the album I think you should talk about because it was important to me because whatever, you're welcome to do that as well. So if you're interested in, you know, not co-hosting an episode with us, but want us to talk about something specific, please sign up and uh, we'll do it. Right. And don't be shy. Please don't be shy. We want to record these episodes. Uh, The one we did recently with Scott. Oh, so good. It's so good. And it's also really important to get other people's perspectives, especially on records that I have known since I was a five-year-old boy. He was bringing a, a completely different point of view to it. And that means a lot to me. That means I can still learn about stuff that that I know, like the back of my hand. I know that album so well and he brought up things that I hadn't even considered and I think that's that's part of the growth that's part of why we do what we do is yeah. is to just open that dialogue about music and I think it's great so don't be shy come on people yeah do it so Joe the Wet's Brock at Dulcinea right again we're back here you want to talk about the band this album charted at number 34 on the Billboard Top 200 to step forward for sure went platinum showed them developing as crafters of a really unique sound that was unlike anything that was out there at the moment and even though this is the fifth time we've done this, uh, we should spend a couple minutes bringing people up to speed. Toad the Wet Sprocket was formed in the mid-80s in Santa Barbara, California, by four friends who had known each other from San Marcos High School. They were 15-year-old singer-songwriter guitarist Glenn Phillips and 19-year-olds Dean Dinning on bass and vocals, Todd Nichols on guitar and vocals, and Randy Gus on drums. They named their band after a fictional rock band used in a Monty Python skit called Rock Notes. And their first gig was an open mic night in 1986 when Glenn was still in high school and they did not win. <laughs> they self-financed their first record, 1989's Bread and Circus. They released two singles from that record, Way Away and One Little Girl, both of which charted on the Billboard Modern Rock charts, but not significantly enough to make any noise in the music industry. That's still pretty impressive, though, even at the time. Yeah. I mean, especially at the time, because this was pre, like, you couldn't buy a MacBook and two nice microphones and be like, you know, an audio interface, be like, we're going to record an album. Right. You had to have studio time. You had to have engineers. You had to actually pay for all of that stuff. And that's impressive that they were able to do it. Yeah. Every time I read about it, I'm like, oh, yeah, they did that. Yeah. The follow-up record was released in 1990. That was called Pale. And their their sound and songwriting had developed. And during the recording of that record, they were signed to Columbia Records. But instead of taking money and re-recording Pale in a bigger studio, they negotiated with Columbia to reissue their first record instead. So uh, two singles from Pale, Jam, and Come Back Down also charted on the mar- modern rock charts, but not consequentially, however. But they did begin to receive considerable airplay on college radio. And that was 
when I first heard them. So I was in my freshman year of college and wasn't having a very uh, good time. <laughs> uh, the transition from high school to college kind of sucked, and I was mourning the loss of a lot of friendships uh, and trying to rebuild, and it was a very strange period for me. And I heard this album actually come back down, I heard on the radio, and it was so morose and sad that I needed to buy it because we crave things musically, at least I do, that reinforce the feelings that I am already having. Sure. So it makes me feel that there's someone out there that can relate to how lousy I'm feeling. So I listened to this record for months <laughs> and I still do. I still listen to it quite often. But that, I mean, that reinforced, oh, this guy, he's so sad. I'm sad. <laughs> I'm sad. He's sad. Yeah, we should just be sad. So their 1991 follow-up that we talked about, Fear, saw them reach international stardom uh, on the backs of two top 20 singles, All I Want and Walk on the Ocean. Fear went platinum, reached number 49 on the Billboard Top 200, spurred an extensive tour for the next couple of years. And while this is the album that broke them worldwide, they really didn't come into their own songwriting-wise until this record, the one we're going to talk about, Dulcinea. Dulcinea was released on May 24th, 1994, and the reviews are kind of what you would expect in 1994 at the tailing end of grunge. The songs are sweet, the melodies are pure, but the band lacks a distinctive sound or a compelling front man. And of course, they're not wearing sweaters. Right. They're not wearing sweaters. The lead singer's barefoot all the time. What's all that about? So, And of course, Robert Christigau couldn't even be bothered yes. to write a review on such a pedestrian band. Of course not. But the ones who did love it... The ones who still love it, the buying public, spoke their mind. They released two singles from this record, Fall Down and Something's Always Wrong. Fall Down reached number one on the modern rock charts, stayed there for five weeks, finally being supplanted by The Offspring's Come Out and Play, which is a completely different sound. <laughs> uh, it also got to number 33 on the Billboard Top 100, reached number 10 in Canada as well. Something's Always Wrong did not quite get as high, topping out at number nine on the modern rock chart, but still, that's not too shabby. Yeah. And it got to number four on the Billboard Top 100. So the album was recorded at the Sight Studio in Marin County, a studio nestled in the hills of California, used by Pearl Jam, Neil Young, Dolly Parton. And of course, that studio, like so many we have talked about on this show, closed for good several years ago. Mm. The producer for Dulcinea was Gavin McKillop, as he was their producer of choice for almost all of the 1990s. And while he has been a successful producer for Toad and others, he was an engineer first. Yeah. He was a protege of legendary producer Steve Lillywhite, and Toad benefited a ton from having someone that adept at mixing and engineering who could isolate instruments so well because grunge was very much a product of noise and yeah. everything like smashing you in the face, a lot like punk was. And this music, which was so distinctly different, you heard instruments, you heard the sound of strings being plucked. You could hear certain things that you couldn't hear, but it's a, it's a testament to the way he mixed this record. It has a unique sound to it for the time, especially because so many people were fighting that, that loudness war that we've talked about before, where they were trying so hard to make their music as full and as packed as it possibly could be to, to, you know, override all the other noises in people's lives. But here you can pick out individual notes. You can tell the difference between, you know, the bass and the guitar, there's a lot of distinction between all of them. And it, it pays off, I think, in the long run, because now that, you know, hopefully we're past the loudest wars, you can go back and listen to albums like this and they sound great. Mm -hmm. They have a unique sound to them that doesn't sound like anything else from the 90s. Did you know this record? I did not know this record. Okay. Um, I didn't even know the two hits from this record. Really? Yeah. Besides um, Walk on the Ocean uh, and... Uh, all I Want. Yeah, All yeah. I Want from uh, Fear. Mm -hmm. I was not particularly familiar 
here with uh, Toad the Wet Sprocket before we started doing this podcast. Sure. Uh, and in fact, before I met you, I probably would never have known like uh, <laughs> that this was, you know, oh, those songs are Toad the Wet Sprocket songs. But I know that, you know, this was one of the early things that we talked about. We mm-hmm. talked a little bit about Rush. We talked a little bit about classic rock. And then I think you brought up Toad within yeah. a couple of weeks of me starting working with I was you, probably so. going to see him right around then. I think you were, So yeah. that probably came up. Yeah. You want to talk about the artwork for a second? Well, well, let's talk about the name. Okay. Dulcinea. Oh, yeah. Takes his name from Dulcinea del Toboso, a fictional character from the Miguel de Cervantes novel Don Quixote. Randy Gus was reading the novel uh, while they were making the album, and Glenn was intrigued enough to pick up the cram guide to it, basically, uh, <laughs> and uh, read through it really quickly. And then he wrote some songs about it. So in the story of Don Quixote, uh, Don Quixote himself is losing his mind. Uh, and he's decided that he is a knight, and as a knight, he needs a lady. He doesn't have one, so he invents one from just his imagination. In the John Ormsby translation uh, into English, Don Quixote describes Dulcinea thusly. Her hairs are gold, her forehead Elysian fields, her eyebrows rainbows, her eyes suns, her cheeks roses, her lips coral, her teeth pearls, her neck alabaster, her bosom marble, her hands ivory, her fairness snow, and what modesty conceals from sight such, I think and imagine, as rather Rational reflection can only extol, not compare. Cervantes, man. Right? It's a hell of a book. Have you ever read Don Quixote? Oh, yeah. I honest, I'm going to be honest here. I have never read Don Quixote from beginning to end. It's one of the finest uh, pieces of written work in Western literature. I mean, it's it's incredible. So no reason to read it then? No, you can skip it. (laughs) Watch the movie. So this is his imaginary girlfriend that he envisions to be a perfect woman. Yeah. But he would see anyone and imagine them as perfection. It was the difference between seeing things things as they are, as opposed to how he wanted them to be. Yeah, which is the whole theme of Don Quixote. Right. And the cover that, might as well talk about it. Yeah, now, the cover is a, is a microcosm of that, right? It's a, it's a painting of a two-sided lily mm-hmm. coming out of a vase. One of the sides is perfectly painted and colored and composed, while the other is drawn, but not painted. Yeah, it's like a sketch. Right. This album is all about, or a lot about, duality and seeing things how they are and differing points of view about the same thing. Yeah, the cover also, the vase that they're coming out of is that famous illusion of a vase where it is two faces right. or a vase and it's it's you know it's interesting that they picked those themes uh, for the album and then were able to reflect them that well in the album cover and i think a lot of that goes out to um jason holly who did the illustration for this mm-hmm. uh, he's a, a an illustrator who was originally born in texas but he's now based out of la he's done work for a lot of varied clients over the years with a lot of work being done for publication work yeah like uh the new yorker or um entertain uh entertainment weekly um um, entertainment magazines, things like that. Things where they need quick turnaround times for, you know, you need an illustration for their article about, you know, something that's affecting society right now. If you poked around his website, his, his style is very unique. Yes. And very recognizable. Once you see it and you see that style, you're like, yeah, yeah okay. Well, I recognized a lot of his work that I would have never pinned to him uh, until going to his website. There's a picture uh, he did of Saddam Hussein wearing a suit, mm. which I think he wore when he was on trial. Uh, after the after he was captured, and uh, it was, I want to say it was in the New Yorker, but don't quote me on that. I'm not quoting but, you, but uh, it's like a, it's a drawing of him with a very big head and a very small body. It's, it's a very memorable.
memorable drawing for some reason to me. One thing that I've loved about this band from the time I started following them was the originality and unique qualities of their album art. Uh, you know, we we talked about Fear and and Coil had yeah. that like paper, like almost paper mache, like very yeah. constructive. It was all very physical. And it's something that, you know, it's lost on, <clears throat> excuse me, lost on a lot of people now, that album cover and how it would capture your attention going into a record store. The Fear album cover was bright yellow. Everything about it was yellow. And it stood out. Even on a CD long box, it stood out right away. And I'm like, I need to have this. Yeah. And and Dulcinea was the same way. It was red, but the painting was so unique that you're like, I need to have this. You know, I've been listening to this band for over 30 years. So, and if you're expecting a banger of an album, you aren't going to get it. Yeah. This is not how the band operates. But if you're prepared to listen to some wonderful melodies with fantastic introspective lyrics, then this album has that in spades. So you want to take a break and then come back and do a track by Dre? Yeah, it sounds good. Okay. Today's show is brought to you by Atomic Podcast Services. Are you tired of spending hours hunched over your computer struggling to edit your podcast episodes? Do you want more time to create instead of editing? Well, we have the solution for you. Introducing Atomic Podcast Services, a premium podcast editing service that will take your show to the next level. With Atomic Podcast Services, you can say goodbye to tedious editing tasks and hello to a polished, professional-sounding podcast. They will expertly enhance your audio quality, seamlessly remove background noise, and ensure every episode sounds crystal clear. But that's not all. As part of their premium service, they will also help you with ID3 tagging, scheduling, and posting of episodes, and for a little extra, even create engaging audiograms to promote your episodes on social media platforms. There's even a discount if you subscribe to their monthly services. With Atomic Podcast Services, you'll have more time to focus on what you do best, creating incredible content. So why waste another minute struggling with complex editing software? Let Atomic Podcast Services take care of the technical side while you focus on captivating your audience. Visit their website at Atomic Pods, that's pods with a Z, dot com to learn more and book your editing session today. Fly from heaven. Fly from heaven. There's a, a an interesting thread of Christianity that kind of flows through all of their albums. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's stronger, sometimes it's weaker, uh, but it's always kind of there. And this one, this song very much is one of the stronger moments. Uh, yes, it is. So a lot to <laughs> unpack lyrically in the song that I almost forget what a wonderfully catchy song it really is. Mm -hmm. Melody is super great. The guitar work is especially superb. And one thing that I've always been a big fan of in Todd Nichols playing is that he rarely plays straight chords. Hmm. He plays a mixture of chords and individual notes, which is really busy, but it doesn't sound busy. And there's a great texture in his playing, especially during the latter part of this song, uh, which sounds like this.
lyrics. Hmm. Oh boy. So the song, right? You you have it? Yeah, it was, it was written from the point of view of James the Just, mm-hmm. who's probably maybe Jesus's brother, depending upon In Catholic tradition, he is considered the literal brother of yeah. Jesus. Um yeah. depending upon, you know, which tradition you believe in, he might be brother in the sense of, you know, like, yeah, we're brothers. Yeah, you know, he might also be more of a cousin. There's he might also encyclopedias be... of debate about this. Yes. Um uh, anyways, it's written from his point of view and Paul, the biblical apostle, uh, who claimed he spoke in the name of Jesus but had never actually met him, was something that James found very unnerving. Mm-hmm. So James, as a close relation and follower of Jesus, uh, who would have known him really well, uh, was upset by this. And Paul, who had never met Jesus, actually, and in fact dedicated himself to the persecution of Jesus's followers, tried to speak in Jesus's name. And that's a little upsetting. And this whole song is about how Paul, I'm sorry, excuse me, how James felt about that. Right. James is relating the narrative of his displeasure. Yes. Paul, previously known as Saul before his transformation on the road to Damascus, and how he is twisting the words and deeds of his brother Jesus to further this thing he refers to as Christianity. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first lines of the song set up the story. Paul is making me nervous. Paul is making me scared. He walks into this room and swaggers like he's God's own messenger. And James is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This guy, Paul, just strolls on in here and starts saying, Jesus said this and Jesus did that. And the next line, and I'm not going to go line by line, say that he never even knew him. And he's right. Paul was extremely critical of Jesus' followers until his conversion, which theoretically happened five to seven years after Jesus was crucified. So the song is dripping with sarcasm and doubt, saying that, quote, if Jesus is all that you say he is, when is he just going to fly from heaven and save the rest of us? But that's, of course, not what Jesus ever said would happen. Paul claims that in order to have everlasting life, all you ever needed to do was accept salvation through Jesus. But Jesus himself never taught that. This is what is referred to as the Pauline doctrine. This is such a converse, fun conversation for me anyway, but it gets complicated. <laughs> like I, I could talk about this all night. There are many differences, but the fundamental difference is that Jesus preached that the way to salvation was through repentance for sins, water baptism, keeping the law, the one law, forgiving others, and faith in him. And Paul said that salvation was achieved only by faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's it. Hmm. So basically, you do whatever you want to do, but the last second, you want to convert, you're okay. So, and this song is basically saying, is basically James saying, you have perverted my brother's words and teaching, so stop it. <laughs> so, knock it off. It's great stuff for a modern rock song. Are you kidding me? That's just so freaking good. Yeah. Because there is that much to unpack. And I love just digging deep into songs like this and really finding out, you know, Glenn's headspace for some of this stuff. Because yeah. it's uh, it's amazing to listen to. So <laughs> Wood burning? Yeah. This one reminds me a lot of the songs on Fear, both in the sound and the lyrics here. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's definitely a callback to that. Uh, they wrote piles of songs for each record. So it's mm. possible that the song existed before the sessions for Dulcinea, that yeah. it was part of the, the fear sessions. But it's definitely the most one of the most aggressive sounding songs, both in sound and lyric. Mm. It's harder edge guitar sound. And while the last song relies more on that texture sound I was talking about, this one leads more towards that chord work power chords here and there before softening in some spots. The drum work by Randy Gus is especially great on this song. Uh, Randy was with the band until 2015 when he retired from the road due to his health, but he is still active as a teacher in the San Diego area, so he's still busy. And this song uh, sounds like this.
So lyrically, the song is much darker than the rest of the record. Mm -hmm. uh, Toad, and more specifically Glenn, who writes most of the lyrics, uh, they're not ones to shy away from dealing with depression. Uh, many of their songs do that. For me, this song is very much about that. There's this subject of duality. The subject of the song is very much at odds with himself, uh, but he's powerless to change it. The line, every day is the same, nothing ever changed. I can't stand it, but I can't do anything. I've had a lot of friends over the years suffering from some form of depression, and it's, that seems to be the general sentiment. They know they are battling. They know they need to do something about it, but they just don't feel they have the strength or the power to change it on their own. It's an incredibly powerful song. No, uh, I think this is a good song, and I think that it definitely, the other underlying theme in a lot of, of Toad's lyrics are depression. Mm -hmm. And obviously, Glenn dealt with it, and I feel like some of the other band members dealt with it as well. And it's a theme that comes back over and over and over again throughout their works. But it's it's front and center here. It's, yep. it's on show here. I think it's a good song, though. I like this one a lot. It definitely sounds different, though, than anything else on the album. Mm -hmm. And anything on maybe any of their other albums, too. It has a unique sound to it. Would you say that something's always wrong? I would say something's always wrong. Mm, that's the next song. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is sort of a, instead of a love song, it's a Our Love is Falling Apart song. Yes, it is. This was the second single released from the record. Got to number 41 on the Billboard chart, but charted significantly higher in all the modern rock charts. Yeah. It is always a crowd favorite in concert. One of the longer songs in the entire to Toad catalog, almost reaching five minutes. Ooh. And a lot of that runtime is actually instrumental bits, which is fairly rare for them. Hmm. This is also their last single to reach the top 100, which just speaks to the impact they made with fans fans at that time because they've toured and released albums successfully for the next 30 years without one song entering the top 100 since then. So one of my favorite things that they do in this song, something they have done a few times through the years, is a call and response in the chorus. Glenn speaks the first couple of words, sings the first couple of words, and there is a response to it from the background vocals, again, part of that duality. The chorus words are again, and the response is we fail, and then it's it seems we meet, and the response is to meet and mend. He says in the spaces, they say space is safe. He says in between, between intense, we always say, say too much, it won't be long, long been gone, but something's always wrong. It's like his original idea is being added to as they progress through the chorus. The chorus sounds like this. So supposedly, when Todd was coming up with the music for this, he wrote just one line, which was, something has gone wrong. Glenn then took that and ran with it. Uh, and he's told Song Facts in a 2022 interview, quote, I kind of lifted that and switched it, an amalgam of a whole bunch of relational observations. As a person who struggles a lot with depression and negative ideation, for me, that's the state I'm always swimming upstream against, that feeling that something's wrong. It's usually based on a true story, but it's almost never the whole story. 
Makes sense to me. Yeah. Uh, this song was uh, managed to gain some fame in uh, TV and movies, mm-hmm. uh, which always helps out sales. It was used in the movies Fear and Tuesdays with Maury and appeared on the TV shows Cold Case and Scrubs. There's also a line in this song that has always stood out to me for years, uh, the line, a brace of hope, a pride of innocence. Brace and pride, in this respect, are both collective nouns. A pride of lions, a brace of rabbits. And Glenn was pleased with the symmetry of this line, using a collective noun for this. But for 10 years after this was released, no one ever asked him about it in interviews. <laughs> so he just started bringing it up in concerts randomly. <laughs> and it's such a unique line. Is he is the couple he's singing about the brace of hope? Are they're trying to work together, but something is always wrong. That's just uh, it's just good stuff. Yeah, stupid. stupid. Stupid, stupid toad. Stupid toad. (laughs) After the heaviness of the first three songs, we get this quirky little piece about a guy that has a worker over to the house to fix some stuff. And it turns out that his wife dated this guy a long time ago and the husband just feels stupid and out of place. Yeah, they had a sexy sex history. (laughs) Some of the lines like, it's frightening, I didn't expect that from you, is more about how there are still things about his partner that he doesn't know. And he's surprised, maybe, that she dated that guy for whatever reason. (laughs) And it sounds like this. And it's frightening, I didn't expect that from you. It's blinding, serious, are you serious? Just a weird little tune. Yeah. Fits the sound of the record as a, it's a bit of an up song from all the melancholy. It's definitely timed just right, too. You get down just a little bit, and then there's this positive song to bring you up a little bit. And then right back down. And then right back down. From one of the lighter tunes on the record to one of the heaviest and deep. It's just, this song says so much about where Glenn was, where a lot of people are in relationships. It's a really powerful song. Go ahead. Oh, it's called Crowning. Crowing. I wrote down Crowning, and I've been reading it as Crowning Crowing. for weeks. No, Crowing. Well, all right. All my notes are useless. Please continue. <laughs> crowing. Crowing. It's so it's... <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens when... <laughs> Awesome. I legitimately like I was writing down because one of the things that I do when I'm taking my notes is I go through, I write down every single track name and then I go through and I'm like, as I'm listening to it, I fill in all my notes and then I go back and do my research and everything. Uh, Yeah, I wrote down crowning. Uh, I could see how that would and then I was totally like, change the meaning. Yeah. And then I was like, wow, this is a weird. All right. You know, and I'm like researching it and doing and like, like a baby crowning. Yeah. That's what I'm like. Like. <laughs> Huh. <laughs> right, like <laughs> like the crowning achievement, and but I'm like, but it's such a depressing song. What yeah. the hell is this? Is weird. All right, so we'll just rely on my notes Let's here. Let's do that. Yes. So I'm obviously an excellent researcher. It is written from the woman's point of view in a relationship, and she has been trying to fix him, giving him everything she has. She gives him her body, her love and affection, but nothing. <laughs> Go ahead. She's attempting her crowning achievement. <laughs> To fix him. Way to work it in. You're welcome. Uh, but no, 
nothing she did made him right, and he's still flawed, and the relationship is doomed. And she tries like hell to separate herself from the relationship, but they are entirely codependent at this point, so she can't. Lines are, get over regret. While you were sleeping with angels, he was under the bed. And the more skin you shed, the more that the air in your throat will linger when you call him your friend. So even after she separated from him and she was alone, he was still there. Someone hiding under the bed metaphorically, always present and in her life. I'm going to go there because I honestly thought this was ironic. Like she was like, my crowning achievement is supposed to be me figuring out this guy and making his life better, but I can't do it. We just took two different roads to get there apparently, apparently so uh, Matthew what does it sound it like? sounds like this get over regrets he was sleeping with angels he was under the bed in the more skin you shed more than Crowing. Crowing for repair. Crowing Basically, for... Basically, squawking. That's why I was like, crowning for repair? What does this even mean? Crowing for repair. <laughs> so... Uh, I apparently also can't read, because I read this several times, and read crowning every single time. Hmm... The song features some of the best vocal work on the album. Perfectly played bass parts. Sometimes Dean Dinning's bass goes unnoticed uh, because the instrumentation is typically fairly simple, but it's so solid that you can forget it's there because it's exactly where you need it to be. So you're not really paying attention to it because it's there. So one of the things I found while researching this song, not crowning, was how many articles there were written by psychologists who all say how much of a perfect song this is for someone needing a description of codependency. Oh, interesting. Uh, the need to fix someone and that attachment is very prevalent. And so I saw this like five or six different places that people, that psychologists use this as an example. Like if this is how you are, <laughs> there's some issues here. So you're suggesting that psychologists are codependent on the need for this song to describe what a codependent relationship yes, is. Yes, yes. And then to use it to describe what crowning is. Oh, okay. Fair <laughs> enough. It's probably my favorite song on the album and definitely the most mislabeled one as crowning. Fair enough. Listen, Matthew, (laughs) is the next song. Right? Does somebody get murdered in this song? Uh, or is it a clandestine relationship? Or what? what is going on in this song? It's relationships gone wrong. So this is a song uh, where Todd Nichols' guitar work absolutely shines. It's a standout guitar track for me. It's dirty. It's noisy. It's loud. It does have wonderful guitar parts. Uh, and this just, to me, it seems to be a glimpse into a fight with a couple. Okay. Call me whatever you want, but will you just stop and listen to what I need to say? It's tough, um, but listen to the guitar work right here.
you think it's the codependent uh, couple from the previous song arguing here? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so just as a note, this is the second time on the record already that Glenn has referenced in his lyrics that he is, quote, a liar. Mm-hmm. Uh, earlier on the record, he said, we are all liars. And there has to be something to that. I wonder, you know, if he felt like he was lying to himself, imposter syndrome popping up again, that he doesn't feel that he's earned the fame and recognition that he's now getting as a result of this. So he is a liar. But there's definitely a, that glimpse into a couple like really not getting along and not communicating well, probably as a result of uh, the song before it. Yeah, I like that. Windmills? Windmills, another reference to Don Quixote, probably. Oh, it is absolutely. Uh, I liked Glenn's description uh, of this uh, in the same song, song facts interview from earlier. He said, quote, it's that balance between dreaming and showing up and living in an invented world and trying to figure out what reality is. Mm, okay. Very nice. So, like you said, re- continues the reference to Don Quixote. Anyone familiar with the book will know that the title character was losing his mind. He thought that windmills that he was seeing along the countryside were giants that he had to vanquish in part to find and save his perfect woman, Dulcinea. So for me, this song is one of the most gently romantic songs I've ever heard, but you have to really find it in there. First of all, the song is largely acoustic mm-hmm. and it has this soothing sound and Glenn's delivery is softer than it's been up to this point. Uh, there's a lot of reverb used in the song, which opens up a lot of space. Some of the drums sound cavernous, almost like timpani in spots, but it all works. If you listen to what, what Glenn is saying, he spends too much time raiding windmills or trying to slay dragons or trying to solve problems when what he needs to realize and does is that she and he are partners and they solve those things together. Hmm. They laugh until they get it right. That's the lyric from the song. We laugh until we get it right. He doesn't need to be her hero, reference to crowing there, doesn't need to be the hero, <laughs> the codependent hero, but they work best as a team and there are times when he needs to be reminded of that, that he doesn't have to own all of their problems by himself and they can do it together. The song sounds like this and pay special attention to some of the guitar parts and like you can hear the strings you can listen to this mix in here It's just one of the most gentle, relaxing songs. Like, it is something that I can listen to on the patio. It's just a, such a beautiful song to listen to. Yeah, it definitely has a feeling of like a wide open space, like you said earlier. Uh, both in the recording of it and just in the coming together of all the musical elements of it, It's it paints a picture of a wide open field, like a, an open, airy space. A giant windmill? With a giant windmill, maybe. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's wonderful. So the most important line of that song, I played it in there, is, called, is tell all the porters to lighten the load, tell all the passengers we're going home. So to me, that is him directly telling his brain that he can offload some of his worry and concern to her, and it will ease both of their burdens. Her from feeling like he is always distant off raiding windmills because they'll share that burden together, and him from the knowledge that he doesn't have to own it and do it all himself. It's wonderful. Just wonderful writing in there. I think it's great. Uh, Nancy? Nancy. Nancy Toad. Nancy Toad. (laughs) 
Uh, it's a country song. Yes, right? it is. This album uh, named after a country singer, Nancy Griffith. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also references another country singer, Loretta Lynn. Yes. Nancy Griffith, if you've never heard of her, was a singer and guitarist who toured on her own and with a laundry list of famous singers uh, from the 60s through the 2010s. Loretta Lynn, uh, who I hope everybody's heard of, is another country musician who's a singer and guitar player. Uh, she has a bunch of hit singles and several gold albums. Her most famous song is probably Coal Miner's Daughter. Yeah, I actually have in my notes. I hope Kyle gets all this. It's another little little ditty that breaks up yeah. some of the heaviness uh, with another strange little tune. So the song is ostensibly, it's about a couple breaking up and they are dividing their record collection. Mm-hmm. He accuses her of bending her words like Yuri Geller's spoons. Oh man, Yuri Geller is a douchebag. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yuri Geller, depending on who you, who you speak to, was either a magician or a con man. Uh, he was a guy who back in the late <laughs> 70s- Con man. And, con man. <laughs> Uh, in the late 70s and into the 80s and beyond that, he claimed he had psychic powers. One of his most famous things that he would do to prove that. Oh, by the way, he thought he had psychic powers that were given to him by aliens. Yes. One of the things that he would do is he would bend spoons. So he would hold a spoon up in his hand and you would watch it bend and kind of twist down. And, oh, I can do this with my mind. This was proven many, many, many times over to be a magic trick. It was repeatable. Uh, whenever he would be asked to do, he had a very famous fight with a uh, uh, Randy, can't think of his last name now. Uh, famous debunker. Oh. They had a very famous and very public fight between them. Did you say Newman? Uh, Randy Newman. It was Randy Newman. <laughs> Randy Newman. I love LA. <laughs> oh, that was beautiful. Uh, no, but they, uh, he, he was basically a con man and he, he, he conned a lot of people out of a lot of money and, um, lied to a lot of people. And yeah. It was very unfortunate, but he was well known for, for doing this spoon bending magic trick on television. Right. So he's telling her that she bends her words like he bends spoons. So they don't really see eye to eye on anything. And he can't believe that she keeps changing her mind about stuff. So he does the same thing, but it's about something as ridiculously petty as a record collection. <laughs> so Loretta Lynn and Nancy Griffith, like you said, but the song sounds like this. I can't believe you You bend your words like Yuri Geller's spoons You're not quite safe here When every judgment seems to smack of doom Are you okay? I'm just fine You take Nancy So, uh, just to uh, capitalize on your Yuri Geller stuff, hmm. uh, interestingly, he was the best man at Michael Jackson's wedding. Ooh. A guy we all knew a thing or two about. It's just a bit, yeah. Uh, he also negotiated the deal with Martin Bashir that provided the first TV interview of Jackson after he had been acquitted of child molestation charges in the 90s. Oh, goody. Then, Geller appeared on a presumed enemies list of Jackson's that was found after his death. So, I wonder what he did. Bent all Michael Jackson's spoons, probably. Right? Like, There's no good spoons Michael anymore. Michael would go to get some cereal and he'd pour it all in the bowl. And then, now for a spoon. Oh, no, they're all bent. Damn you, Yuri. Now for, now for some now for, I get a spoon and I'm going to eat these cornflakes. Very strange goings on, indeed. Yeah, very uh, weird. Fall down. Fall down. 
went to number one on the modern rock chart, number five on the mainstream rock chart, and breached the top 40 on the Billboard Hot 100, which is pretty damn good. Right. Apparently, this song was written way earlier in their careers. Uh, Did you find this quote? Uh, Glenn had this to say about it. Hmm. I think it was written before the Fear album came out. It was an early one and loosely based on a woman, a girl at the time, in high school who was rebelling against and living out people's worst expectations of her. I think when you're misunderstood, there's an urge sometimes to self-destruct as a form of rebellion. So I was watching that happen and thinking about it. (laughs) So like a lot of their singles, with the exception of Something's Always Wrong, this song is a bit more up-tempo and rockier Mm -hmm. and is a fan favorite in concert. It also has one of my very favorite bass lines by Dean Dinning, and it sounds like this. So the song was used, and I think you'll appreciate this, Kyle, Hmm. in the 1994 super awesome movie Drop Zone, Hmm. starring Wesley Snipes and Gary Busey, who play cops who go undercover to thwart a drug-smuggling parachute gang. Oh, it's such a good movie, too. Have you seen it? Oh, yeah. Of course. Freaking amazing. It was supposed to star Steven Seagal, but he wanted $15 million for it in 1994. They literally told him to fuck off. It also stars a fresh out of the Cosby show, Malcolm Jamal. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite lines from that movie. <laughs> he won't talk to you until you've jumped with him. Uh, like, uh. It's a big thing. People are skydiving and parachute jumping in the 90s. Extreme sports. Uh. I knew you would appreciate that oh, reference. So good. so good. You didn't get that? No, I did not. Oh, my gosh. Missed that one. I thought as soon as I saw it, I'm like, Kyle's got to get this. Kyle's going to get yeah, that Kyle. one. I didn't. I'm glad you got it, though. Drop zone. I, I, drop zone. It was right around Passenger 57, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. I think this was, I think Drop Zone was, I want to say they filmed it a couple of years earlier and then there was some kind of a problem. So it didn't release until. Was it Gary Busey? Yeah, probably Gary Busey. Uh <laughs> It didn't release until right around the same time as Passenger 57. All right. But don't quote me on that. Always bet on black. Always bet on black. <laughs> Passenger 57. Inside. Inside. It's a little heavier song uh, with some uh, slightly high vocals. Oh, yeah. The last three songs on the record are weird to me. So there's a quality to these last three songs that give the album a totally different vibe. Uh, Heather and I, during this period, right after this record was released, were about two, three months away from our wedding. We were running a business. We were working on godly hours and then driving back to an apartment 30 minutes away every night. So this record, along with Throwing Copper by Live, were our driving home records that we sang along to. And it was a powerful release after a very long day. But these three songs at the end were not ones to sing along to. Even the slower songs earlier on this record are singable, but these these aren't. There's a lot of falsetto weirdness. I like these songs, but I haven't spent as much time with these songs even all these years later. 
Like Listen from earlier in this record, the guitar work is great. I love the sound that Todd creates on this song. And of course, he's the main vocalist on this song. Um, he usually does one or two per album, but there are no iffy songs from the one he does. You know, they're very distinctly his. Yeah. Uh, the lyrics, though, are Glenn's, and it's all about there's that duality again, finding a more peaceful side to yourself. Uh, the second verse is, tear this anger from my soul, wash me clean and leave me whole, leave me higher, work my hands to make them strong, lift my arms to carry on, that anywhere I go to never be alone. And I'm such a huge fan of his lyrics, and they've meant so much to me for all these years, that there's so much power in some of the things that he says when you break them down. But it was always odd for me to hear Todd singing these words, because it, it's in a different headspace. Yeah. Song sounds like this. It's so different from everything else on this album, and I think so different from almost anything else in their catalog that it's, it, I don't know, it's its like you said, it, these last three songs don't fit on this album, but they're no. good, but they're just weird. So while I will say that Glenn writes a lot about relationships, I really don't think this is a song about a relationship between two people. No. At least you're talking about a relationship with yourself. Uh, it's self-addressing, it's self-exploratory, uh, and that's where it connects me best, uh, that introspection. I just, something about it. Begin? Begin. This is a very 80s sounding song. Something about the keyboards here. Just really... It's an odd quality, right? Yeah. It's ethereal, very wispy. So weirdly, too, this song made me think about um, Daft Punk. Uh, the songs uh, Night Vision and Something About Us from Discovery. Okay. They very much have this same kind of a synthy keyboard sound to them. Now I have to go back and listen to it. Right? In listening to this and thinking about that, I was like, yeah, maybe. It's a little farther of a stretch than I thought that it was in my head, but it's there. It was a long time. It was That episode was a long time ago. Yeah. I'll have to listen to it again. This song is also sung by Todd. A lot of spirituality in this song. Mm -hmm. There's a gravity to it. Even though it sounds kind of wispy, there is strength to it. The song is about the death of a parent told from another parent's point of view about a child learning about the parent's death and wondering where they go when they die. So the crux of it is that you never die, that you live on in people's memories and the energy you leave behind. The lyrics, close the door behind you, turning out the light, press a flashlight up against the wall. You say, this is how we knew him in a little egg. It opened up, and this is Daddy now. So how brilliant is this? So put a flashlight up against the wall, and it looks like a little egg on the wall. But when you pull the light away from the wall, it spreads its light out and impacts even more places than it was when it was close to the wall. And that is so great. Yeah. This is what we knew of him when he was with us, but what he impacted becomes much more evident after he's gone. And that is... That's beautiful. Fantastic. And the song sounds like this.
I feel like the keyboards are stronger at the beginning too, like in the intro. Yeah, I think and you're right. That's where I really heard that that comparison. It's a somber dirge-like song, but it's yeah. super beautiful if you break it down. And honestly, I'm very surprised that this song made it to the album since it sounds more like a song that would show up on their B-side collection in Light Syrup, an album mm. that came out like a year and a half later where they had all these songs they wanted to release but nowhere to put them. So the just, leftovers. Yeah, just shoved them on there. It's a super special song. However, the next one, mm. the final song on the record is one that I utterly avoided <laughs> for years. Like really, I would stop after Begin and either start the album over or listen to something else. But all these years later, I'm finally coming around. So the beginning of the song is a little unlistenable. Glenn's voice is all over the place. It's strained. It's weird. But towards the latter part of the song, the guitars kick in and the distortion is really heavy. And I'm beginning to see its value. It sounds like this. Such a noisy song. Yeah. And what he's yelling there is mother. And the song is actually about what the title says it's about. Reincarnation song. Told from a first person's perspective. Clearly they thought going to heaven was going to be a certain way. Yeah. Uh, maybe the way religion teaches us it is. But it was clearly something else. And before his spirit, the spirit can get settled and deal with the baggage that he has as he gets there. He finds himself making his way back to earth to be reborn with a new mother. I really like the idea, the the lineup. Tugged back to earth. Tugged back to I earth. I like that. That really is was incredibly descriptive to me. Uh, this has a weird combination of there's there's some country elements here. There's obviously some Indian and, and Hindu religious elements here. Yeah. There's some Christian elements, and there's some real heavy like rock and grunge elements in this song. It's a very fascinating amalgam of all those things, and yeah. it's I can see why you would avoid this song. It's out of character. It is, and it doesn't like his the what he was doing what he's doing to his voice in this song doesn't sit well yeah. with me. It's uncomfortable, so, and uh, sometimes that's good another song inspired we've talked i feel like this has come up multiple times another song inspired by aldous huxley's the doors of perception right. uh which apparently glenn was eating breakfast and reading the book and came up with this which completely makes sense or doesn't or both or neither right because that is a reference to mescaline i think yeah. in the song so that makes sense that he was reading doors of perception you know yeah. that all kind of blends together the feeling of this kind of reminds me of um el scorcho by weezer Ooh, it's it's a very similar sounding song and it fits in the same way on the album where it's out of place and doesn't quite fit with everything else. But then you listen to it and you're like, all right, I guess. We haven't done a Weezer album yet. Have we? we haven't. Yeah. So that's uh, Dulcinea. Yeah. Beginning of season five. I love the record. I always have. That's a very special place in my catalog. I love it. But we want to know what you think. Yes, please. Tell us what you think. Tell us you're sick of toe the woods, Brockett. Tell us you want to hear something else. But too fucking bad. We're going to do one in a year, bro. Right. Before until we run out and then we yeah. have to look somewhere else. Then we'll start like uh, doing weird stuff. Like, so this is like an offshoot project that they did, or this is, you know, Lapdog. Yeah. Their other band. Right. So yeah, let us know. 
You can get a hold of us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash audio judo on X at audio judo. Go ahead. There you go. At Instagram at audio underscore judo, or you can send us an email at info at audio judo.com. We actually respond to those fairly quickly. Yeah. Uh, you got some shout outs? I do. Shout out to our patrons there. Christian S, David W, Kristen K, Michael S, and Scott K, all of our backstage past tier patrons. Thank you all so much. You are the ones that make this podcast possible. Aaron P, Michael A, front row seats tier patrons. Thank you both so much. You also help make the podcast possible. And Diane and Simon C, our UK consultant, both the shout out loud tier. Thank you so much for listening and for your support. Absolutely. So upcoming stuff for this season, we have Kansas. Mm-hmm. We have stuff that Kyle's going to pick that he hasn't picked yet. Yeah, I'm going to do that too. Uh, we have, uh, we're doing a new, relatively new record. So that's going to be new. We got some interviews coming up. It's going to be exciting season. Uh, obviously our holiday episode and our best albums of 2023. That's 2023 right now. Yeah. Oh God, I got to write that. Yeah. I've been writing it all year. What the hell have you been doing with your time? Oh, I see. Working. Yeah, Whatever. Sorry. But until then, a couple weeks from now, take care, everybody. Bye. Bye-bye. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.